most of the Bible is pretty straightforward. Fathers and sons, lies and murder, hopelessness and prayer. We understand these things because they're sort of a part of our everyday lives. Wars and kings and enemies and allies. We can grasp concepts like these. Everyone is familiar with war, unfortunately. Nations have leaders, even if they're not all called kings. So when I read the Scriptures and I encounter farmers and priests and rebellion, I get it because I'm kind of surrounded by stuff like this. I mean, even if I'm watching it on the news, it's not a huge cognitive leap for me to understand what's going on. Every so often, though, I come across a thing in the Scriptures that's nothing like anything I'm familiar with in my day-to-day. It's an aspect of the world that's faded over time. And as far as I can tell, I don't really have access to it. There's no real immediate and direct way to explore it. And in cases like these, it takes some work to wrap my mind around that thing, to understand that thing. And every so often, the point of the passage that I'm reading is lost on me until I can wrap my mind around that thing that I just don't understand. This passage hinges on curses. Curses. And I don't mean it in a figurative sense, like a streak of bad luck or a decades-long failure to win a championship. I mean real words spoken with an oath that is actually binding on self and others Words that actually have power. Words that mean something, not just for the speaker, but for the hearer and for the God who judges both of them. I don't think you can understand the passage we're going to read without understanding how curses work. And that right there, that's a problem. Because I don't think I've ever cursed anyone, as far as I can remember. And when I started to read this passage, I had no clue how curses work. So before we read this morning, I want to explore the scriptures and I want to show you what I've recently learned about oaths and blessings and curses. And then I want to read the story of Samuel and and show you what I think are some pretty amazing connections. So let's get to it. First off, I need to make a distinction between oaths on the one hand and blessing or curses on the other. An oath is a promise that invokes the name of God. When someone takes an oath, he swears to something as and, and as a guarantee of that promise, he invokes the name of God. Can we switch just to the next slide? Perfect. That'll help us because it's going to get a little confusing. Hopefully not. When someone takes an oath, he swears to something, and as a guarantee of that promise, he invokes the name of God. You should be familiar with this concept because oaths happen in our context every day. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. That's an oath. And in this case, when you take this oath, you are functionally saying, I promise to tell the truth. And if I lie, I am subject to the wrath of God for defaming His name. See, it's the name of God that is central 
to the oath. When you swear by an oath, you risk defaming the name of God and subjecting yourself to God's wrath for doing so. And believe it or not, the Scriptures actually encourage oaths. Listen to this from Deuteronomy 6.13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall swear by His name. And listen to Jeremiah in 12.16. If they will diligently learn the ways of My people to swear by My name as the Lord lives... Even as, they were, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of the people. See, in the right setting, the act of swearing by the name of God is an act of affirmation of His authority and His power. And it is thus an act of worship. We are warned, of course, not to take the name of God in vain. And Jesus warns us not to swear oaths Flippantly, but in the right setting, the most appropriate means of affirmation of God's power and might is to swear by the name and the nature of God. But when you do so, know this and be warned. If you swear to do a thing by the name and nature of God, you better do that thing because you're bound to a higher judgment if you choose not to. Because the point of your life and the point of my life and the point of everybody's life is to exalt the name and character of God. The exaltation of the name and character of God is the point of the universe. And if you take an oath in God's name, you be prepared to chase that thing until you haven't any more breath in your lungs because God will honor His name. Now, the reason we started with oaths is because blessings and curses are types of oaths. But they are types that aren't available to everyone. A blessing is like an oath in that it's binding. It binds a people to a certain course of action. And a blessing is like an oath in that it guarantees an outcome. Blessings bind an individual or a people to a course of action and promise good things to those who fulfill the conditions of that blessing. Curses are similar, but opposite. Curses are like oaths in that they are binding on an individual or on a people. Curses are like oaths in that they are a guarantee of a certain outcome, except in the case of curses, the promise is a negative outcome, a terrible outcome in most cases. And only God or those speaking with His authority can rightly issue blessings and curses. Let me be clear. Anyone can curse anyone else. And that happens a lot in the Scriptures. But for the curse to be binding, for it to have any real power over others, for it to be truly a guarantee of what's to come, it must be issued by someone whose authority has been granted by God. That person has to have been granted authority by God, has to walk in the power of God as a representative. In the same way, anybody can bless anyone else. And we see that happen. But for that blessing to be 
binding. For it to be a promise of what's to come, it has to come from someone who's got authority given by God. That person has to walk in God-given authority for His words to have any power over others. So we see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob bless their sons. And when they do, though, their wor- when, when they do so, their words are binding. They are guarantees of the outcome. Because God has moved in them and blessed them and given them authority. And we see Melchizedek blessing Abraham because he's a priest of the Most High God. And his words are binding and powerful because he represents God. Because he speaks in God's name. And there's one especially clear moment in the Scriptures that helps to illuminate curses. I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy 28.15. Now this is a pretty powerful moment in the history of Israel. Because this is just before the people inherit the land that they've been promised. Moses stands before the people and he warns them not to forsake God. And the way he warns them is by issuing a series of blessings and curses. Now these blessings and these curses are binding upon the people of Israel because Moses, who walks in the authority of God, issues them. They are binding because he speaks with God-given authority. There is power in these words because they're spoken in the name of God by the representative of God. Is everybody there? Did everybody make it to Deuteronomy 28, 15? Hold up your Bibles if you're there. Awesome. Read with me. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in this city, And cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration, and all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds, because you have forsaken me. So what we've just read is a curse. A curse over the people of Israel, effective under certain conditions. On the condition that they do not obey the voice of the Lord their God. On the condition that they are not careful to do all that Moses has instructed them to do. They will be cursed in the city and in the fields. And when they go to war and when they return from war. They will walk the earth cursed in confusion and in frustration because they have forsaken the Lord their God. And that curse is binding. It is a guarantee, a promise of the course of events given these conditions. That curse is a promise and God Himself will work in mighty power to fulfill that promise because He is zealous for His great name. Moses issues this curse and it's binding and it's powerful because he does so bearing the authority of God. Now you can imagine, right, how terrifying 
a curse would be for the people of Israel. This isn't merely a warning. This isn't merely a threat. This is a a promise. If you don't walk with God, you will be cursed. And you will die at war and in exile and in poverty. That's a promise. And it isn't a promise made lightly. This is a promise made and sealed with the power of God and enforced with the ferocity with which God protects His great name. You are cursed, people of Israel, if you step outside the covenant. And Moses could issue these words because he was granted authority by God to represent him before God's people. He was granted authority. And as soon as he stood before the people, he spoke with that authority. Priests curse and bless. And they do so because they're granted the authority of God. Prophets curse and bless, and they do so because they're granted the authority of God. And kings, kings curse and bless, and they do so because they're granted the authority of God. Their words are binding, not as a function of their political force, or their persuasion, or even their righteousness. Their words are binding as a function of their God-given authority. Everybody tracking? Okay, I've repeated things like 15 times. It'll make sense in a minute. I think we're ready to read the passage. Turn to 1 Samuel 14, verse 24. 1 Samuel 14, verse 24. Read with me. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, So Saul laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Okay, let's rewind for a moment. If you were here last week, you might remember that just a moment ago, Saul was hiding in a cave. Terrified. Hiding in a cave. That isn't what faith looks like. But as Saul was cowering in fear, Jonathan was valiantly marching through the valley of the shadow of death because he knew that God was mighty and able to save by many or by few. And if that were were all, it would be enough of an indictment against the character of the replacement king of Israel. But just then we get a glimpse of the darkness in Saul a glimpse of the dark, glory-hungry heart of Saul, the replacement king. If you were here last week, you might remember the law we read from Deuteronomy about what should happen before you lead the people of Israel into battle. Let me read it for you. When you go out to war against your enemies, and you see horses and chariots, and when you see an army larger than than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not not your heart faint. Do not be afraid or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is He who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies and to give you the victory. 
Saul knows this law. And for a moment, he considers following this law and giving God the glory. Glory, by the way, that God's earned because he's already done all the work. Yet as the priest prepares to address the people, Saul notices that the battle is going really well for the people of God. And he's tired of waiting. So he says to the priest, never mind. Scratch that. We don't have time. We don't have time to give glory to God for the victory that he's already winning. We don't have time to shout of the might of God for the mighty work that's already unfolding. Because if I wait any longer, I might not get any of the glory. So never mind, priest, we're leaving. Saul isn't just a coward. He's a glory-hungry, faithless coward. But God saves His people despite this coward king. And that's where we left off. But just now we read that Saul is leading the people to chase after the fleeing forces of the Philistine army. Read it again. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. My enemies. Cursed be the man who eats food and is avenged. Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Okay, so right there, just at the outset of this passage, there's a spectacular display of glory-hungry hypocrisy. Because Saul was just a moment ago cowering in a cave while these men, who he just cursed, were putting their lives on the line against a mighty enemy. Just a moment ago, Saul was cowering in a cave while God Himself was at work rescuing the people and vindicating His name by defeating His enemies and protecting His people. This is the work of God, not of Saul. This is the work of God, mighty to save. And God's might was working through those who, despite their fear, rallied against their oppressors in hope. Saul was not among their number. This coward king waited until the tide had turned, until the enemies were routed and fleeing before he ran with his forces onto the battlefield. That's bad enough, but this is worse, because once he parades spotless onto a bloody battlefield, he pronounces a curse on all those weary men who bought the freedom of Israel by putting their lives on the line in trust of the mighty God. But remember, this curse was uttered by the king of Israel. This is a curse issued by the anointed. And the people knew to be afraid of this curse because a curse issued by the representative of God was binding and powerful. Fear the curse of the king because the power of God will work accordingly. Keep reading. So none of the people tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest... Behold, the honey was dropping so that no one, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father 
charged the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found? For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. So the people, bound by the curse of the king, chased the remnants of the Philistine army. Now I want you to stop and think about this. This is a battlefield full of soldiers fighting with pitchforks and pickaxes. And they've been chasing down and battling the mighty forces of Philistia for hours and hours. Think CrossFit, but on steroids. Running and jumping and swinging and hitting and dodging and screaming for hours. Exhausting. On a level that perhaps you and I may never understand. And man, they just needed calories. So Jonathan, who's the victor, by the way. Jonathan, who is, by the way, the embodiment of hope and faithfulness. Who led the people to a great and miraculous victory by the might of God as God in chorus shook the earth. This is that Jonathan. Jonathan doesn't know anything about the curse. He didn't hear it. And as he's chasing the enemies of God out of the promised land, Jonathan reaches down and he dips his staff in honey. And it lifts his spirits and it brightens his eyes. It is life to him. And it is death to him. That honey nourishes his tired body and he feels invigorated by the taste of it. But it is poison to him because remember the king has spoken a curse. Now, I want to take a moment to look carefully at his words. Because the author has to this point made clear that Jonathan, not Saul, is the faithful, the honorable, and the trustworthy figure in this story. If anyone is faithful in Israel, it's Jonathan. And that matters because over the last few passages, the author has made a point to contrast the actions and words of Saul to the actions and words of Jonathan. Jonathan wins a great victory over the Philistine garrison. And what does Saul do? Saul parades through Israel shouting cries of victory. Saul cowers in a cave, terrified of the enemy of God. While Jonathan treks through the valley of the shadow of death, fearing no evil. And here, Saul is a fool, crippling his own forces in glory-hungry zeal. So when Jonathan speaks, we should hear more than merely the words of the king's son. We should hear more than merely the words of a soldier on a battlefield. When Jonathan speaks, we should listen carefully because these are the words of the righteous, faithful son. Now listen as Jonathan reflects on the decision that his father has just made. My father has troubled the land. Troubled. 
Now, this is a loaded term. And I want to quickly glance backwards because this term, troubled, isn't used very often in the Scriptures. And when it is used, it means something significant. Turn with me to Joshua 7. Hold up your Bible when you're there. Awesome. And before we read the passage in Jonathan 7, I want to give you some background. At this point in the, in the history of the people of Israel, the people have just passed over the Jordan River into the promised land. And it's called the promised land because it's been promised to them. Promised by God under certain conditions. God has promised to His people victory in battle. So long as they follow Him faithfully, so long as they obey Him, He's going to fight for the people unless they disobey Him. He'll fight for the people unless they break His law. Listen quickly to Joshua's instructions to the army of Israel in Joshua chapter 6. He says, keep yourself from the things devoted to destruction. Lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. Did you catch that? Keep yourself from the things that God has devoted to destruction or else if you take them, You'll make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and, wait for it, bring trouble upon it. So you'll never guess what happens next. This guy Achan, a common soldier in the camp of Israel, ignores the command of God and he takes what he wants instead of destroying them. He hides them in his tent. And the people of Israel begin to lose battles. And the soldiers of Israel begin to die in battle. So Joshua knows that something is wrong. And when they ask God about it, they discover that this guy Achan has broken the law and that they are cursed by God because of it. Achan broke the law and they are cursed by God because of it. Now listen to what Joshua says to Achan. I didn't write the verse reference down, so I'm going to find it. Verse 25. Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. Why did you bring trouble on us? Trouble. What does that word mean, trouble, just then? What does Joshua mean when he says, why did you bring trouble on us? What does it mean to trouble Israel? Your actions, your foolish, disobedient actions have brought a curse upon the people of God. Your actions are a curse to us. You have brought trouble on us, Achan. 
We are all under a curse because of your foolishness. Now, flip back to 1 Samuel 14 and look at the words of Jonathan. My father has troubled the land. My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Okay, so think about these words for a moment because they're not chosen by accident. In both cases, the people of Israel could have won a great victory, but instead did not because of the covenant faithlessness of a fool. In both cases, God's might could have been lauded and broadcast to the nations, but instead was not because of the covenant faithlessness of a fool. And in both cases, the covenant faithlessness of a fool resulted in a curse that crippled the people of God. Okay, so keep reading. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon. And the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. So you could read these words and merely assume that the people of Israel are again ignoring the law of God by again chasing after their own pleasures. And that's true on one level. But that's not what this is here for. This scene, this scene here is fundamentally related to the foolishness of Saul. Because the context that you've got to read into this scene is that these men are dog-tired and they are weary and they desperately need food. Now, that's not an excuse to break the covenant restrictions regarding meat, but you need to see the actions against the backdrop of Saul's foolish curse. Because if at any point the foolishness of Saul has led the people of God into sin, it's here. Because I cannot imagine how desperate they, have, they must have been for sustenance. And Saul does nothing to, to facilitate their obedience. Nothing. A faithful king would have provided a means to remain covenant faithful on a battlefield. But, and don't miss this, Saul doesn't even realize that the army of Israel is breaking one of the most fundamental restrictions in the covenant. He doesn't even notice Saul has to be pulled aside and told that the people are sinning. So think about this scene within the greater story. And what you'll see is that Jonathan's words that Saul has brought trouble upon the people of Israel, Jonathan's prophetic words are immediately embodied 
in the people's disobedience. This scene is a crystal clear reminder that Saul has been trouble to the people of Israel. Just like Achan, Saul's covenant faithlessness has become a curse to the people of Israel. The replacement king has just led his people outside of the covenant. He's just facilitated their disobedience. And he's brought a curse upon the people of God in more ways than one. All right, now keep reading. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. So we see here nothing from Saul that should surprise us. As soon as the people are replenished, glory-hungry Saul begins to command them back to the chase. And the people, to this point, led by their replacement king, are ready to do it. But the priest knows that you never go into battle without asking God first. Saul doesn't get that. This is the second time in just a few paragraphs that he's rushed into battle without recognizing that God is the mighty warrior of Israel and that God is the true king of Israel and that God gets the glory of Israel. He doesn't understand that the only enemy worth pursuing is the enemy of God by the might of God for the glory of God. No, Saul pursues his enemies, my enemies, for his glory. And yet again, Saul's glory-hungry foolishness is on display, and it is a stumbling block to the people. Keep reading, because this is where the story starts to turn. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give me into the hand of Israel? Give them into the hand of Israel. But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You all be on one side, and I and my Jonathan shall be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do whatever seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, Why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord, give, uh, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people of Israel, give Thuman. And Jonathan and Saul were taken by Lot, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of my staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. So God isn't answering Saul. Now I think it's interesting that Saul never once considers that that God's silence might be related to his violation of the covenant by offering sacrifice. Or his violation of the covenant by dismissing the priest before rushing into battle or his violation of the covenant by leading the people into sin he doesn't think well yeah of course God isn't responding to my questions 
Because the prophet just told me that my line is broken and that my kingdom is coming to an end. And that I've just forsaken God, therefore He has forsaken me. He never once thinks those things. It's mind-blowing. He has the audacity to call Himself God's servant. No, not for a moment does Saul consider that God's silence might be related to his own covenant faithlessness. But the priest starts to ask questions of God. And very soon we're reminded that the curse on God's people, laid there by Saul, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening and I am avenged on my enemies. That foolish curse was binding and powerful because it was issued by the anointed king. That curse is working against the people. And we know that because Jonathan, the faithful and righteous son, Jonathan is taken by Lot. God will not speak because the foolish king of Israel has issued a curse on the righteous son of Israel. A curse that has fallen on the righteous son. A curse on the faithful royal son. A curse is on the people of God. A curse that falls on the royal faithful son of the king. Does it sound familiar? And just like Jesus, Jonathan lays down his life on behalf of the people. Bearing the curse, though he committed no sin, Jonathan, the royal son, lays down his life for the cursed people of God. Here I am. I will die. What a shadow. The prince of Israel cursed by God though he did not sin. What a shadow. The royal son who did not wrong, who did no wrong says, "Here I am, I will die." This is kind of how shadows work. Similar to the gospel but different. Saul, the replacement king, illegitimately curses the people. But Jonathan, the royal faithful son, is willing to die on their behalf, though he's committed no wrong. God, the true king, righteously curses the people. Jesus, the royal faithful son, is willing to die on their behalf, though he's committed no wrong. Look, this book is written to cast a shadow. You're not reading it rightly until you follow that shadow to the true king of Israel. When you see the moving faith... And the courage of the faithful son. You need to follow that shadow to Christ. And when you see that son miraculously defeat the enemies of God's people. You need to follow that shadow to Christ. And when you see the righteous son lay down his life to lift the curse from God's people. You need to follow that shadow to Christ. See, even in the midst of a story of Saul the fool... We're given a picture of the coming rescue of the people of God. And that's how the Scriptures work. When we're struck by the disobedience of Israel, and when we're ready to despair for the habitual failure of the, of the people of God, when we see them scattered and hopeless, always there's a shadow cast. A shadow of the coming King. The true King of Israel who will rescue the people of God. Who will cleanse them and restore them and adopt them. Trace the shadow of the bridegroom who will lay down his life as a bride price. Follow the shadow in the darkest moments of the Old Testament and you trace it to the brightest moments of the new.
Keep reading. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Something just happened here that requires your attention. Jonathan has just laid down his life willingly to remove the curse from the people. And I know by now that we shouldn't expect anything from Saul but foolishness. But what happens next is staggering. Saul says, you've fallen under my curse? Okay, fine. May the Lord destroy me and do worse than destroy me if you don't die because of your actions. That's an oath. And that's not any oath. That's a curse. Saul sees that Jonathan has fallen under his wicked curse. And what he does here is so desperately foolish that you might even feel sorry for him. Saul curses himself on the condition that John doesn't die for having fallen under his curse. He doubles down on his losses. He sees that this foolishness, his own foolishness, has resulted in the condemnation of a treasured son of Israel. His own son. The very soldier who has led Israel to victory. And rather than weep, and rather than cry out in pain and lament, and fast, and plead with God, Saul doubles down. You broke my rule? You're going to die, Jonathan. I swear it to God. You'll die in your righteousness. You'll die because you violated my arbitrary command. In his glory-hungry zeal to pursue his enemies, Saul made a huge mistake. But when he sees that mistake, he does not repent. He pushes further and he demands blood. Saul swears by an oath that he will kill his righteous son. And he curses himself on the condition that he fails to do so. Now, here, I think, is the point of the passage. Keep reading. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, as the Lord lives, as the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground For he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines and the Philistines went to their own place. That's enough, Saul. That's enough. You've done enough wrong, Saul. You've led us poorly. We are worse for your leadership, replacement king of Israel. And if it wasn't clear when you fled the mighty forces of our enemies, and if it wasn't clear when you forsook the God who saves, and if it wasn't clear when you hid like a coward in the cave, and if it wasn't clear when you cursed any man who took a bite to eat to recover from exhaustion in the battlefield, it's clear now. You are no longer our king, Saul, not really. We won't let you have your way any longer. 
That's what the people say. We rejected our good king for a replacement, and you have let us down. While you were cowering in the cave, our great and mighty God was fighting on our behalf. Our true king was still being our true king. While our replacement king hid in a cave. The mighty God of Israel was moving miraculously through his faithful son while you were cowering in a cave. You shall not have his blood this day. And you need to see how powerful this moment is. Because not long ago, the people were demanding a replacement king. And that king has been a curse on the people of God. Saul was a curse to the people when he desecrated the atoning work of the priest. Saul was a curse to the people when he swore an oath condemning any who eat. And Saul was a curse to the people by leading them into sin. And now the people have had enough of their replacement king. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, not one sh- there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground. For he has worked with God this day. That is an oath. The final oath in this passage. But what's noteworthy about this oath is that it's coming from the people. The people as one man swear by the God of Israel that they will not allow the foolishness of a replacement king to destroy the faithful son. The people just rose up against their coward king. And what's startling about this passage is that the curse that Saul swore the curse that should have been binding and powerful against Israel and that should have resulted in the death of Jonathan, that curse is void. All of a sudden, when the people rise up against their replacement king and choose instead to follow the God of Israel and His faithful, all of a sudden, the binding power of the replacement king is shattered. And Jonathan was ransomed by the people. We will see from this point forward that the replacement king of Israel lives a shattered life, a broken life. He is haunted and afraid. He is paranoid. In a word, he is cursed. Cursed is the replacement king of Israel. We will find him descend into madness. We will find him cowering on the battlefield. Because from this point forward, Saul himself bears the curse. The Lord do so to me and more also if Jonathan does not die. And the people said, okay. We're through with you, replacement king. We've had enough of your covenant faithlessness. If because of your foolish oath someone must be cursed, let it not be the faithful son. Let it not be the victor through whom our mighty God delivered us. Let the curse fall on you. And so it did. Cursed be the replacement king of Israel. 
We've had enough of your foolishness. We're ready for a better king, a faithful king. We're ready for the true king of Israel. And may we, with the people, shake our fists and say, cursed be the replacement kings. We're ready for the true king of Israel. And that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to look forward to the true king of Israel and his return. Amen.